So the reading is from 1 Samuel, beginning at chapter 8, verse 1, and finishing at chapter 9, verse 2. And it's on 277 in the Church Bible. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second son was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some I will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. There was a Benjamite a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Korath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Good morning. Let's just pray together before we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, amongst other things, it's faithful history. But we thank you, too, that it is applicable to our own day and age, that you have things to say to us, even from stories that uh, 
I've had events that took place hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So we pray, open up your word to us now. Apply it to our hearts for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Pretty soon we're going to be celebrating the coronation of King Charles III. Uh, and all kinds of dignitaries are going to come, aren't they, from all over the world. There are going to be presidents, there are going to be prime ministers, um, the, the great and the good, and the great and the not-so-good are going to assemble, and the king is going to be crowned. But just imagine for a moment that he has spoken a number of times, hasn't he, wanted to cut back a little bit. What if he decided, I tell you what, let's be a little bit elitist this time, and we'll only invite kings. So he Googles to find out how many kingdoms there are in the world. Uh, and if his Google works exactly the same as mine, he comes up with the answer that there are 43 kings. And so he sends off, they're all checking their Googles now, I can see people doing it. Um, he then sends off to the local printers to get 28 invites printed. And that's because he's king of 15 of those 43. And if you add all his titles together, um, it ends up with King of Tuvalu. He's the King of Tuvalu amongst many, many other places. There's all sorts of names for kings, aren't there? And um, we're, we're one of the few monarchies left in the word. Pharaoh is another name for a king. Interestingly, the Romans were willing to fight civil wars not to use the name king but we're quite happy for people like Julius Caesar to be called emperor, or Augustus emperor, uh, and Julius Caesar dictator for life. They didn't mind that, but king, nope, because all of the other titles were seen as, as applying to the empire, whereas king referred to Rome, and Rome allegedly was always ruled by the Senate and the people of Rome, and they were very kind of fussy about it. But, but kingship, by the time we get to Samuel's day, is a really well-established method of government. It's back there in Genesis 14, um, in the, the days of Abraham, when a, a whole series of kings, you remember, come together to fight against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And already in Israel, there is a kind of creeping move slowly but surely towards kingship. Because one of the essential features of kingship is that it is hereditary. If it's not hereditary, it's not, it's not kingship. Uh, and this hereditary kingship is, is already being nudged towards um, in the period of the judges, the period that um, the advent of the monarchy, King Saul, actually marks the end of. Um, because if you look in, in uh, Judges 9, for instance, um, or if you look in Judges 8, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. So although they were not calling people kings, that they were already looking for a judge who would have been raised up by God, but then to perpetuate him with his son and with his grandson. Uh, and as you read through the book of Judges, you'll see that didn't work very well for them. It's all kinds of different forms of government, aren't there? There are republics 
um, we're what's known as a constitutional monarchy. Israel was intended to have a very unique form of government, and it was known as theocracy. In other words, that they should be ruled by God. Ruled by God. So this is the, the concept. I've forgotten I've got a PowerPoint. This is the concept. I'll probably forget again as the day goes on. Um, ruled by God. Uh, and that really is the, the heart of the passage. Exodus 15, 18 reads, The Lord will reign forever and ever. Uh, and it explains why when the people say, Give us a king, Samuel is very displeased. Uh, and later God says, Look, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. Because Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. Uh, and those of you um, that were ever in church members' meetings um, when I was pastor here will know um, that one of the things I said, probably to your sheer annoyance, was this is not a democracy. In a democracy, everybody has a right to his own opinion. A church is a theocracy. Nobody has a right to their own opinion, but all of us have a right to discern the mind of Christ. Uh, and there's a huge difference between those two things, isn't there? It's what was happening was that Israel was beginning to reject the rule of God. So there are two big mistakes that are listed in this passage, uh, and there's something we can learn from both of them. The passage begins with the, the very simple words, when Samuel became old, he made his judges sons over Israel. So Samuel the, the great hero of the book, is, is making this same basic mistake himself. He's choosing his own sons to follow after him in a role that actually only God can bestow upon anybody. Judges were raised up by God, uh, and we've already seen in 1 Samuel the, the call of Samuel and so on. Um, you can't pass that on. Gideon couldn't pass it on to his sons and his grandsons. Samuel can't pass it on. But there are two things that happen, don't they, with old age, or there are two possibilities. One is that we enter a kind of wise and godly old age. Isaiah 46, 4 says, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. For those of us who are getting to middle age and, and beyond, it's, it's a great promise, isn't it? To even to old age, even to your gray hairs, says God, I'll look after you. If you keep faithful to me, I will keep faithful to you. And with that age, is supposed to grow wisdom. Job 12, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in his length of days. Or, or Psalm 92, they still bear fruit in old age. They're full of sap and green. That's the one possibility of, of old age, um, that you are faithful to the Lord, you're, you're still resting on all the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the Lord, and you're exhibiting more and more wisdom. You've learned largely, I would suggest, from your own mistakes. Uh, and you've thought, I won't do that again. You've done it again, and you thought, I really won't do that again. And eventually, you get the point. But the other, sadly, is spiritual decline. And that's what we have here 
in 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, whether Samuel appointed them, knowing this, or, or whether they became this once they'd been appointed, I, I don't think is totally clear. What is clear is that Samuel has made a mistake. These sons of his are not fit for the office, just as his mentor Eli had sons that were not fit for office. So his sons are not fit for office. And old age can, can't it, have this kind of danger to it. David Payne says that the dramatic irony in all this, both Eli and now Samuel, it was obvious to everyone that great and good men can have evil and worthless sons. And yet the elders responded by demanding a king. And by definition, a king is a ruler whose son automatically becomes king after him. Just in passing, I think the other great example in Scripture of decline in old ages is, of course, King Solomon. 1 Kings 11, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So that's the first big mistake they that, that is made in this passage. Samuel, uh, as he grows old, instead of becoming wise, makes a foolish decision. I would argue that whether he knew what his sons were like or didn't know, whether they became that afterwards, his mistake is thinking that judgeship can be hereditary, that one judge can follow another judge. When they can't, they need to be individually called by God. The second big problem is that they are demanding a change of government by which we need to understand that they want to dump the system of government known as theocracy. The key verses in, in this chapter, uh, or the key verse is part of verse 5, now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. In other words, they're saying, we want to be like everybody else around us. Any sympathy with that? Oh, I've got sympathy with that. It, it is so much easier, isn't it, to blend in. Our, our children, um, because they, they very often hold to, to different standards from uh, their, their classmates and so on, how much easier to blend in, to look like everybody else looks like, to, to do what everybody else does, to, to, to be what everybody else is. But it's a pressure on us, isn't it? It's a pressure in the workplace. You're there, and very dubious humor is being thrown around. Uh, and, and it's so easy, isn't it, not only not to make any comment, but just to have a kind of a, a smile on your face so that you don't look as if you're disapproving. We don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. Uh, and even the, the kind of radical, we're different movements, 
It, it always used to move, uh, amuse me when you've got the punks and so on, you know. We're different. We're not like the rest. No, we're just all like each other. Um, you know, we wear the same dustbins and we've got the same kind of paper clips sticking everywhere. And, you know, we're, we're, we're different, but we're the same. We've got our own little group of people. Uh, and Israel is looking around at the world around them. Uh, and Israel is saying, Do you know, that's what we want to be. We want to be like everybody else. When the, the Midianites come in, we, we don't want to just sit around and wait for God to raise a Gideon. We want to have a king somewhere that we can go to and say, hey, king, go out and fight for us. But it isn't going to work. Uh, and the New Testament equivalent of that, isn't it, is a, is a challenge to us. Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, be different. Stand out. And Israel, that was her essential calling from God, wasn't it? You're not like the other nations. You're different to the other nations. You have a covenant with me. You have my law. I am your king. I go out to war for you. I'm the one who leads the armies of Israel. When Joshua is standing um, at the, the verge of, of the, the river Jordan, he, he sees this, this armed warrior, doesn't he? Uh, and he comes out and he challenges him and he says, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel of God says, neither. But as the commander of the armies of the Lord am I come. In other words, the question is not am I for you, the question is are you for me? Because I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. God wants us to be different and that's a challenge to us, isn't it? Are we different? Is there something about us that marks us out as being different people? Or are we the same shade of magnolia as everything else? There are a number of things wrong in the call that the people make to Samuel, give us a king like the nations. It's worth noting that it is partly the wrong time because if you go back into Deuteronomy, which of course is a long way before the book of Samuel historically, we read these words, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, they're now there, and you possess it, they possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. God says, I will give you a king. There, there is a time coming when I will give you a king. Uh, and we'll see in a minute why that isn't a, a confusion. Why God saying, Israel is a theocracy, and God saying, I will give Israel a king, is not conflicting with itself. We'll come to that in a minute. But he emphasized that it was his will that was to bring this about. It was not Israel's prerogative to decide when the prophecy would be fulfilled. They could just wait. Wait for the Lord to do the Lord's work in the Lord's time. There's another challenge for us, isn't it? <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I, I like things yesterday. You know, 
who doesn't love Amazon Prime? You know, get it before you order it. You know, you, that, that'll come eventually, won't it? Before I press enter, it'll be coming through my door, my, my, my door letterbox. Um, it, there's something nice, satisfying about that. We live in that kind of instant world. But when it comes to the things of God, we have to bide our time, don't we? God doesn't do everything in our timing. He does what he wants to do, but he does it when he wants to do it. And, and the beauty of it is that what he wants to do is the very best thing that could possibly happen. And when he wants to do it is the perfect timing. May not seem so to us, but it is. Uh, and I'm sure uh, when we, we're eventually... Uh, see the explanation of, of time, which I, I, I personally think we will do in eternity, when we're able to look uh, and see what is actually going on, we'll say, wow, Lord, thank you so much that you didn't answer that prayer when I made it, but waited so long, because then you can see the whole kind of plan of what's going on, the, the mysterious workings of God that are so marvelous and wonderful. Sometimes we get a glimpse at them, but often they're hidden for us. But when all is revealed, I think we will wonder at the wisdom of God uh, and we will marvel and we will glorify him for what he's done and for when he's done it. But the second thing is that they want the wrong kind of king. The wrong kind of king. We've already highlighted the phrase, a king to judge us like all the nations. In verse 7 we read, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Later on in, in 1 Samuel 10, we read, Today you have rejected your God. This is the, the coronation, in effect, of, of King Saul, and the people are gathered together. Um, God has, has said, right, well, here's the one. that You want a king like the nations? Here's a king like the nations for you. This one is going to be exactly like the nations around you. Uh, and and uh, there'll be some wonderful things said, won't there, at King Charles's coronation. But I don't think anybody's going to stand up and say, we crown you king because we've rejected God. But effectively, that's what happens here in 1 Samuel 10. They're doing the wrong thing because Deuteronomy 14 has said, you're a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You're called to be different. Why do you want to be the same? It's no passing whim. It's a fixed resolve to disobey God. Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Samuel has laid out for them what, what this will mean. What, what is kingship going to mean for you? How will it work out uh, in terms of taxation and, and, and oppression and so on? And they go, no, no, not listening. Can't hear you. There are times, aren't there, when, as parents, um, our, our children disobey us. And okay. But then there are times when they show a fixed resolve to disobey. No. 
you will know. Oh, yeah, know. You know, and, and, and the, the, the heels are dug in and the teeth are gritted and they are not going to move. And that's what Israel is doing here. Israel is digging its heels in and it's saying, okay, 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 not listening, don't want to know. We want a king like the kings around us. We're now very much, aren't we, in Romans, what I would call Romans 1 territory, without giving you all the verses. Um, as you read through Romans 1, um, verse 21 to start us says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That could be a description of Israel in the days of Samuel. But then Romans 1 goes on, Therefore God gave them up. For this reason God gave them up. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There is something terrifying about a people, a nation, an individual who stubbornly becomes that wanton child who will not listen to the voice of God. No. God gives them over. It, it, you see it working out in the Gospels, don't you? With the Lord Jesus, he, he teaches, he, he goes about doing good, he heals the sick, he raises the dead. Uh, and what do they say? It's better that one man die for the nation. It's better that we get rid of this, this Messiah, this self-proclaimed Christ. It's better to live under Roman rule than under the rule of Christ who heals the sick, raises the dead, and preaches the good news to the poor. Inconceivable, but it's what they do. So what do they do? Instead, they have a very wrong, but a very human choice. Chapter 9 and verse 2, we just bled into, into chapter 9 a little um, as Liz was reading for us because it, it sets the scene. Um, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. He'd have made a decent rugby player, good Saul. You know, there he is. He's strong. He's tall. Um, he's good-looking. I mean, what more can you want in a king than that? Much later on, chapter 16, won't say much about it because we probably will get there at some point, I imagine. Um, David is conducting another survey for a king, this time amongst the sons of Jesse. Uh, and, and out they come, big lads. Yeah, he's, he's got a whole rugby team of his own, isn't he, Jesse? They're, they're all there. They're big. They're strong. And, and, and God says, no, 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 no. No, none of them. Anybody else? Only the whippersnapper, the, the little kid, but he's, he's out doing what he should be doing. You know, he's, he's, he's not king material. He's a shepherd. But God's word to Samuel is, don't look on the outward appearance, on the height of his stature, 
because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Uh, and it would appear, wouldn't it, from the story of David and Goliath and him attempting to wear the armor and so on, um, David is not head and shoulders bigger than everybody else. He's a, a little bit of a shrimp at this point, maybe because of his youth. Um, but he's, he's a valiant man. He's, he's a man that trusts in the living God. And he does also happen to be handsome. The same word is used of him. But that's not why he's chosen. He's chosen because of the heart that lies within him. Uh, and one of the ways you see the difference between Saul and Samuel, uh, both of them, uh, sorry, Saul uh, and David, both of them sin on occasions in their lives. Uh, and when they're confronted by the prophets of God, Saul excuses himself uh, and, and explains himself. And David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he repents of what he's done. What's happening, in effect, is that Israel is rejecting Christ because the king, the king who's going to come is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king promised in Deuteronomy. Not even David is the king promised in Deuteronomy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been said that only in Christ is a man so freed from self and sin that he can become as good as he ought to be. Freedom comes when a man receives Christ as king of his heart and lord of his life. It's interesting, if you do a word count in the New Testament, Jesus is described as lord far more frequently than he's described as savior. It's the lordship, it's the kingship of Christ. R.C. Sproul says the feelings of antipathy against the reign of God run so deep in the human heart that Jesus was brought before the Roman authorities on the grounds that he was making himself king. But he didn't make himself king. The Father made him king. But just as God has been rejected as king by the ancient Israelites, Jesus was rejected as king in the time of his incarnation. And I think Sproul could have gone on to say, and Jesus is still rejected as king by many, many people today. We don't like to be bossed around. Oh, yes, we want somebody to go out and fight for us. We want somebody to, to be there when we need them. But we don't like obedience, and we don't like submitting to the rule of anyone, not even Christ. And Jesus says to the people around him, doesn't he? He who hears you, or says to his disciples, he who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. In other words, those that reject the gospel are saying, no, we don't want this king to rule over us. We don't want Jesus to rule over us. Uh, we want capitalism to rule over us, or we want communism to rule over us, or, or we want uh, whatever to rule over us, but we don't want God to rule over us. And that is the big choice that people make, isn't it? Are we willing to submit to the reign of Christ or not? Well, what's it like to be ruled by men? Verse 18 of 1 Samuel 8 tells us, In that day you will cry out because of your king, who you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So here's the dilemma then in 1 Samuel 8. God says, you're not to have a king, not until 
my appointed king comes. But the people say, no, we want a king. Why does God say, all right then, have a king? Uh, And the answer is given to us really um, explicitly in Rome, sorry, in Hosea 13, um, in 1 Samuel 8, 12, right the way through to 17, God explains to them how, how difficult this will be for them, how wrong it will be for them. And they say, no, 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 don't want to listen. We want a king. Uh, and Hosea, reflecting back on this, gives us the reason. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? And then God explains, I gave you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. As the nation divides, Saul is king, David is king, uh, Solomon is king over the whole nation. And then it splits into two, as you know, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Uh, And the story of, of, of Israel in the north is one dynasty being killed and massacred by the next, by the next, by the next. It's a horrible kind of carnage that goes on. But Judah is not faithful either. Those who follow David don't live like David. They they don't submit to God like David. They don't repent like David. And eventually God says, enough's enough. But God is not going to break his own promise. Uh, And his own promise is that there will be a king who will sit on the throne of David. Uh, And that king, of course, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Gordon Keddie says, it was not vindictiveness on God's part. It was only stating the just consequence of deliberately going against the known will of the Lord. When we go our own way, we forfeit the consolation of answered prayer and have to face alone the evil fruit of our sin. We cannot have our cake and eat it the Lord will never underwrite our rebellion against his will. 1 Samuel 8, I think, is essentially a very straightforward story uh, and, and really has one overwhelming message and challenge in it. Under whose authority do you and I want to live our lives? Who are we going to say to my God and my King? Are we going to be like the world around us? Are we going to be those that that disobey the Lord? Or are we going to be those that find perfect freedom by submitting to the Lord whose rule and reign is glorious and generous and, and wonderful in every way imaginable? Samuel's warning about the kings of the nations was that they were take, 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 take. The king of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, is give, 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 give. Pray God will bless his word to us.